morning once again, everyone. Let's um, start this morning with a history lesson. The date I'd like to draw to your attention this morning is the 30th of September, 1939, 1938, actually, got my dates wrong. Because that was a day that was heard around the world. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, um, he came back from Germany from a meeting with Adolf Hitler, no less, and he came back with a promise. He came back with a promise that said that Germany would not invade any other country in Europe. And so, on the basis of that promise, he stood on the steps of 10 Downing Street in London and he said, we have obtained peace for our time and that moreover, the British people should, quote unquote, go home and get a nice quiet sleep. Well, sadly for the British people, sadly for many others around the world, that promise that was made by Adolf Hitler in 1938 was a false promise. And the biggest and deadliest war known to man began less than 12 months later with the German invasion of Poland. Sadly, history is littered with broken promises. Some, like Hitler's, were deceitful lies. Some others, however, might just be the result of misplaced optimism or a simple mistake. Even here in Australia, we would know we have a history of promises broken or unfulfilled. Wartime Prime Minister PM, uh, wartime Prime Minister John Curtin, he promised no conscription during that war. John Howard in 1988, if you remember, he won the prime ministership with a promise that there is, quote, unquote, no way that a GST will ever be part of our policy. In 2011, Julia Gillard promised no carbon tax, while in 2014, Tony Abbott promised no new personal taxes. And just think of Daniel Andrews in Victoria, not a couple of months ago, where he simply said, no Commonwealth Games for you. Thank you. But while we may laugh, while we may mock our politicians for their broken promises, we have to be careful. Because we too are prone to break our promises. They might be small, insignificant promises. Yes, Mum, I will clean my room. Or maybe there's some bigger promises. Yes, I will spend more time with my kids this year. Or yes, I will pay those bills on time. Psalm 132 that we're looking at today is all about promises. It's all about promises made, it's about promises broken, it's about promises forgotten, and it's about promises kept. So to keep track as we go through this psalm this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to treat it like a big epic play, like a piece of theatre. It's got a big cast, it spans multiple generations and it tells a great life-changing story. 
In fact, we can think of Psalm 132, if you want to remember it, you can think of it as a play in four acts, four promises, if you will. Act one is the promise that we call the rash promise. Act two, we could call the broken promise. Act three, we could call the forgotten promise. And act four, we could call the best promise. So if you want to imagine you're in a theatre this morning, set aside your popcorn and your drinks, because it's time for the curtain to rise and the story to begin. And as the curtain rises on our first act, in verse 1, so if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me. As the curtain rises on verse 1, we can almost hear a chant go up. We can hear the audience go, remember that time, remember that time, remember when, remember when. And in a kind of flashback, we see David, King David, who's, who's kind of the main character in this story, but kind of not as well. We'll find out about that later. Now, we know David, don't we? He's one of the big characters of the Bible. He's the shepherd boy who defeated Saul. He's the man who forged a dynasty. He is God's warrior. And in verse 1 of our text, we see David troubled. He's suffering because of a promise that he made. And a promise not just to another person, but a promise to God, no less. And what was that promise? Well, we can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so we have a bit of a flashback within a flashback. Now, one of the most famous things that David did, if you recall, was to recover the lost Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that story? Do you remember that story, the, the Ark of the Covenant that the Israelites had taken with them across the Jordan into the Promised Land, that most sacred and precious of all Israel's national treasures, they lost it. They forgot where they put it. Well, actually, it was taken by the Philistines. This is the ark. This is the ark that contained the original stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. This is the ark that contains a jar of manna that kept Israel alive during the Exodus. This is the ark that contains Aaron's rod that miraculously blossomed at God's command. This is the ark that was supposed to be at the very center of the tabernacle, the ark that was known as God's footstool, where God would rest, where he would sit. This is, for the Israelites, the very seat of God. If this were a certain Australian movie, these things would all be going straight to the pool room. But nevertheless, Israel managed to lose it. Even after the Philistines returned it, it's a story in itself, it lay unattended and, unfor and, and forgotten in a, place called, in a place called Kiriath Jerim, 
which we read in our psalm as the fields of Jair. So David, David sets out. David, the man of God, God's warrior, he sets out, goes all Indiana Jones. And in verse 6 and 7, we see the scene where he brings the ark with huge amounts of fanfare and ceremony back to Jerusalem. But we read that David was disturbed. How is it, he says, how is it that I live in a palace, but the ark of God lives in a tent? He goes, that's not right, he says. I will build God a house. And in our psalm, that's the promise that David made. David said, I won't rest, I will not stop, until I find a place for the Lord to rest. Now, if we remember 2 Samuel 7, David had some wise counsel, the prophet Nathan. And Nathan received word from God that actually this wasn't such a great idea. God said to David, no. David, he says, David, I love you. I love you and I will build you a house and I will give you a legacy. I'll give you a son to be king after you. But the job of building my temple, my house, is for someone else. David, David, you need to trust me on this. Hmm. So we ask the question, should David have made this promise? And I think that's a very good question, isn't it? Because it's a question that applies to us as well. Should we, should we attempt great things for God? Because what if we get it wrong? What if, we, what if we run ahead of God? Should we, should we step out in faith and trust, not knowing what the future holds? Should we seek to build God's kingdom in the face of danger? And I think the answer to that question today is yes. I think we should. I think that I think that Moses, in fact, as we read through the Bible, I think we would all find that Moses and David, Solomon, Peter, Paul, John, and even outside the Bible, our heroes, Luther and Calvin and the other reformers, they made promises to God. And I believe that we too can attempt great things for our God. For all of us who have professed our faith in Jesus. In fact, for all of us here today, yes, trust Him. Follow God's leading. Attempt great things. Take, take a leap of faith. But we also need to be wise in these promises that we make. We sometimes need to listen to that wise, sober counsel to that friend who's brave enough to speak hard truths into our enthusiasm. And sometimes maybe we need to be careful what we wish for because sometimes the desires of our heart don't entirely line up with what God lovingly has in store for us. Brothers and sisters, David was a man after God's own heart. We cannot argue 
that David was a diligently faithful servant of God. But in this, and maybe you'll hear echoes of this in your life as well, but in this, God said to David, this is not your job. This is not your promise to make. And that can be a really painful thing sometimes, can't it? When we have to submit the desires of our heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that can be sobering and that can be painful. And so the Israelite singers, as they chant this psalm on the way to the temple, they honour the memory of David. Remember David's distress. Remember the suffering. Remember the disappointment of David because he humbled himself before God's will, because he held his own ambition in check and he put God's will before his own. So that's our first promise of Psalm 132, the promise that David made, perhaps the rash promise, the promise unfulfilled. And as we move to our next act in our play, as we turn to verse 8 in our psalm, David, David fades to black and another character steps out onto the stage. So it's a different scene, the props have all been changed. Here the, the scene is the newly built temple and the king, our character now, is Solomon. It's David's son. Because you see, God kept his promise to David. We see that in verse 11, where it says, one of the sons of your body, and it was this son, arguably the greatest Israelite king of all, Solomon, that God called to actually build his temple. And here we are. Here we are. We're in front of this new temple. We're at the dedication ceremony of that temple. And as the ark is placed in the Holy of Holies, the great calling cry of Exodus goes up. We read about it in Numbers 10. Arise, O Lord. But instead of marching to war, Israel now invites God to his resting place. The ark has come home. And once again, flashback within flashback, we can read about this in 2 Chronicles 6. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verses 41 and 42. We, you can actually see this psalm recited here. So for the technical amongst us, we know it was written, at least in part, for this event. But if you back up a little bit to verses 16 and 17, you'll see another bit of Psalm 132. So 2 Chronicles 6 verses 16 says this, Solomon in front of the Israelites. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. You promised, you promised my father David a legacy. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, that's me, that's Solomon, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, did you notice that? Did you notice that? If, if only, if only your sons 
pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. That, that, is, uh, that is verse 12 of Psalm 132. And what is Solomon saying here? Well, what Solomon is saying is this. He's saying this, he's saying, he's saying, I want to be that man. I, I want to be the man that walks in God's law. I want to make this promise. In fact, I make this promise and I will keep this promise. So here is our second promise of Psalm 132. The first was the promise of David and the second is the promise of Solomon, his son. What a noble promise that is to make, isn't it? I will be God's man. And we could ask ourselves a question again, should we make this promise? And the answer is really simple, yes, we should, absolutely. I think that it's the greatest desire of any parent here that our children should grow up and make that promise. That's the promise that we make when we do our profession of faith. I will walk in your law. Brothers and sisters, this is a good promise. But here again, the good promise is a weighty promise. It's not a promise to be made lightly. It's not a promise that we can go, yeah, she'll be right. It's not an easy come, easy go kind of promise. Or even a, yeah, whatever kind of promise. This is a promise that will follow us through our days. This is a promise that if we break it, it will haunt us. This is a promise that could break us like it did Solomon. Because we know for all of Solomon's good intentions, for the great prayers that he did, for all his wisdom and success and riches, that Solomon did eventually break this promise, didn't he? He turned away. Notice in verse 10, Solomon's plea. Psalm 132 verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Not, be careful as we read this, it's not don't abandon me. It's not, I'm not sure if you're good enough for the promise, God. That's not what Solomon is saying. Solomon has a confidence in God that he is faithful to his promises. What Solomon is saying here in verse 10, he's saying this, he's saying, God, don't let me break my promise. Don't turn my face away. How many of us have fallen into that trap? We make a promise and then we're not strong enough to keep it. We break it. That's exactly what Solomon did. He allowed the riches and the glory and the fame to cloud his vision. He lost sight of the promise that he made and he served other gods. Solomon's feet of clay betrayed him and he fell. 
So as our second act closes, we find our second promise broken. The first promise unfulfilled, the second broken. But if act two, if act two closes with a tragically broken promise, I've got some bad news for you. Because our third act gets even sadder, even worse. Now we need to look closely at this third promise. So turn back with me to our psalm, to verse 11 and 12. And it says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he would not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my my covenant and my testimonies, I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Do you see the promise? It's a bit hard. It's a bit obscure. And no, it's not God's promise. We'll come back to that. No, our third promise, if you look carefully, is hidden away in the first part of verse 12. In fact, in fact, the reason that it's so hard to see is that it's just not there. Now remember, the psalm we're reading today is a psalm of ascent. It's a song that the returned exiles would sing on their way back to the temple as a community. And what's missing? What's missing from that scene? You have great tribes of people. You have the temple rebuilt. You have people coming to worship. What's missing? It's the kings. The kings are missing. The kings, the fruit of David's body, David's sons, Solomon's sons, they are gone. They are hauled off to die in Babylon. Why? Because they deserted their promise, their promise to follow God. Because our third promise today is the forgotten promise. It's the promise that isn't made. Despite God's faithfulness to Israel, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, they didn't keep that promise. And the saddest part, the most tragic part, is that by and large, they didn't even try. God called them to follow him. And the kings, mighty, secure, powerful, comfortable, they said this, they said, who, who is God that we should be mindful of him? Who is God that we should make promises to him? Brothers and sisters, there is one thing more dangerous than a rash promise or a broken promise. It's the promise that we don't make. It's the promise that we discard. It's the promise that we should make. It's the promise that we're called to make. And the promise that we ignore. God called Adam and Eve to be faithful stewards of the covenant of creation. Remember that in Genesis. But instead, 
Adam and Eve, they got together and they listened to the false promise that Satan whispered to them in a corner. And what did Satan say? He said, it's all about you. It's all about you. Forget God. Forget what you've been taught. Take what you can get now. Don't make that promise. And brothers and sisters, that temptation, that whisper in your ear is a false promise. It's a lie that Satan told to Adam and Eve in the garden to make them forget their creator, to tolerate, to turn towards evil. It's a tale as old as time, but it's just as deadly today as it was at the time of this psalm, as it was in Genesis 3. It's the lie of the devil. So as our third act closes, brothers and sisters, we see three promises. Our promises, human promises, imperfect promises. Some are rash, some are broken, and some are not even remembered. But thankfully, we're not at the end of our psalm because we have one more promise to go. And as we turn to verse 13 of our psalm, our fourth act opens up. This is, this is the director's cut, if you will, because now the camera angle changes and instead of David or Solomon or the Israelites singing, now God himself opens his mouth and God replies. And God himself replies with a divine corrective on all our promises. And not only that, he proclaims his own promise, our fourth promise for today. And the promise that, hear me when I say this, a promise that we can absolutely rely on. Because in verse 13, God says, I have chosen Zion. I have chosen King David. King David, I love you. But you didn't need to find me a resting place because I have chosen my resting place. Solomon, for all that pomp and ceremony, you did not need to invite me into your temple because this is my temple and here I have chosen to dwell. It is my resting place because I am God and you, dear child, are not. Friends, the reason that God's promises are better than our promises is that God's promises are founded in His infinite, in His self-sufficient, in His self-sustaining goodness. For the technical amongst us, here is one of the attributes of God. It is God's aseity, his self-existence. God's promises are true, not because of anything outside of God. God's promises are true because the only self-existent, the only eternal, the only self-sustaining, the only creator of everything without whom nothing was made that has been made, that God, that God chose it 
He says, here I will dwell because I have desired it. What a promise. What a promise. Because where God dwells, where God dwells, brothers and sisters, there is blessing. And where there is blessing, look in our psalm, look at what we have. Where there is blessing, there is enough. There is an abundance of provision. Where there is blessing, there is comfort and charity for the poor and the suffering. Where there is blessing, there is righteousness. And where there is blessing, there is joy. And all of these things can come from nowhere else but the infinite, never-ending well of God's desire and of God's face turned towards us. Friends, we can rest. We can take shelter under the wings of the Almighty. Why? Because the Almighty desires it. And what the Almighty desires becomes our sure foundation. Brothers and sisters, this is our fourth promise, the promise of God, the promise that is founded in himself. But you might ask, I might not have convinced you, right? It's one thing to point to the promises of God. But you might well ask me, well, Mr. Preacher Man, that's all good and well, those are beautiful words, but how can you be sure? How can you be sure? How can you say that these promises are for me? After all, our strength is finite, our understanding is finite. What if we fall away? What if we stumble or fall like Solomon did? Brothers and sisters, Psalm 132 has the answer to that question as well. Turn with me to verses 17 and 18. And here, here is the proof of the pudding. Here is the core of God's promise to us, the thing that makes our salvation sure. Because in verse 17, God makes three amazing promises to the Israelites. First of all, he says, he will make a horn to sprout. Secondly, he says, he will prepare a lampstand for his anointed. And thirdly, he says, he will make his crown blossom. Now, who is God talking about here? What's he going on about? What's he saying? If you've been following along, perhaps you can feel the tension build. Perhaps there's some goosebumps rising on your skin. Because out of this promise, in this pause, into centre stage, strides a man. You know him. I know him. This is the man of promise. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, the horn of Israel. This is the strength of Israel that was broken and devastated in the exile and it sprouts again in Jesus. Luke 1 verse 68, when Zechariah, that's John the Baptist's dad, 
when he holds the baby Jesus in his arms, what does he say? He sees it right there. He says, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up, what? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. David's promise is completed in Jesus because Jesus, Jesus come to earth, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus risen from the dead, Jesus is our horn of salvation. He is the salvation that God will clothe us in, the salvation that makes us shout, not just joyfully but exultantly with joy. Jesus is not only the horn of Israel, Jesus is also the lampstand of the temple. The lampstand that was lost when Babylon plundered the temple. All those ornate things in the temple, these become a man in John 1 verse 9. Does John say, he says this, the true light, the light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And the crown, and here's the most amazing thing, David's dynasty, the kings of Israel, which became a laughingstock, which became a horror show for the nations around them. The Hebrew word here for shine, I will cause his crown to shine. The Hebrew word here is yasis, which actually means blossom. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Friends, God's promise is Jesus, the crucified and risen Jesus, the Jesus who humbled himself even more than David did, the Jesus who gave up not only his own ambition but his life, the Jesus who rose from the dead to, as verse 18 of our psalm says, not just to clothe his enemies with shame but to clothe his people with salvation. Jesus is the crown that brings life. Jesus is the crown that blossoms. Listen to what Paul shouts out from the text of Philippians chapter 2. After Jesus' humiliation, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So brothers and sisters, like the Israelites, we can shout for joy because of Jesus. We can shout exuberantly for joy because of Jesus, because God's promise of salvation is fulfilled, is guaranteed, is made whole in Jesus. 
as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Now, Albert Moeller, that great American theologian of our time, he once wrote that when Adam and Eve sinned, something changed in us. It's almost like sin is genetically engraved in us. It is sin that makes us incapable of keeping our promises to God. But Psalm 132 displays God's solution to our problem. The sprouted horn, the shining lampstand, the crown that blossoms. Through the blood of Jesus, we are transformed. We are not children of sin, but we become children of promise. The promise that is now engraved on our hearts and our bones. More than just following the law, more than just trying our best, more than just hope, we are inextricably, we are infinitely, we are unbreakably accepted and adopted as brothers and sisters of our first brother, Jesus. And so we can close our look at Psalm 132 today with the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Hear this, brothers and sisters, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, brothers and sisters, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he finishes with this great doxology. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love from the promise of God that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we know we carry the burden of the promises that we make, promises that we so often break promises that we think that we can carry in our own strength and then we find out that our strength is not enough. Father, maybe we're hiding in our heart the promise that we should be making 
and we're not. Father, maybe we come to you today with some unbelief, some doubt hidden in our hearts. And Father, as we gaze upon your Son, Jesus, as the one who came to earth, who ministered to us, who revealed you to us, who died for us and who rose again and is seated with you. Father, we pray that the knowledge of him may open our hearts, may change the direction of our lives. Father, help us to rest in you instead of trying to find rest in ourselves. Help us to follow Jesus and to follow you the only one whose promises can be relied on. In the blood of Jesus we pray. Amen.